Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Chip Scambus. Voters in the city of Gainesville will elect a mayor and a city commissioner this week. Or this year. This week, we have been uh, talking to candidates for both positions. Today, WUFTFM's Leah Harding interviews Pete Johnson, a candidate for mayor, who talked about running for office. Actually, it's a real interesting learning experience since I've never been in politics before. And so the real learning experience is how uh, politics is really personal. Issues is personal. Uh, anything that uh, we might think biomass or um, narrowing of 8th Avenue, those are commonly uh, discussed issues. But when you talk to individuals, you find out there's a lot of different issues that people are uh, concerned about and like to talk about. So that's one of the takeaways from running for office. So issues is personal. What are some of those issues? Oh, like some people are wondering, uh, you know, how we're going to pass a, a, a funding to get funding to deal with our transportation issues, which failed on the ballot, which actually both the county uh, commission and the city commission were against uh, it and the voters were against it as well. Now, finding a resolution to that concerns a number of people. Now, there's uh, a lot of them are ones that you've never even here brought up uh, some people uh, worried about uh, uh, you know some of the uh, habitat for uh, in the in the uh, plants we plant and some of the retention areas uh, just in different issues that you just by talking to people you discover have you discovered new problems since you've been on the campaign trail more people are probably more apt to talk to you about the problems that they think need to be addressed that's, I think that's some of the uh, discovery, the takeaway. You also discover some of the, um, I think, uh, long-held um, challenges or long-existing challenges of bringing this community together. I see the um, polarity, um, you know, has been uh, increasing, or at least my observation, and, and you see it when you go around the community. The um, you know, bringing the people together, uh, developing a consensus, listening to different points of view, and finding solutions has been my strategy. Well, what do you think some of the main issues in Gainesville are? And then what are your plans to address them? One of the things that I think, you know, is on, it certainly uh, brings, gets brought up the most is the biomass plant, which is coming online later this year, which uh, I personally uh, thought and supported when we first had the hurricanes and that hit our area in 2004, uh, putting all that debris into landfills where it turns into methane gas over time and, you know, is a big expense. I thought it would make a lot of sense to build a plant that would turn it into electricity. It's been practiced in Europe for years. And so, uh, you know, when we finally uh, went with that uh, process and approved it in 2009, I... Um, had no real idea of what the contract was. It just sounded like we'd been talking about a 220 megawatt uh, coal plant, so a 100 biomass plant seemed completely reasonable. And then the the circumstances, the reality of the marketplace and the reality of uh, all our efforts to get people to conserve has led to increased demand for electricity, not just in Gainesville, but uh, all over the state. And then the decreasing prices of natural gas has left uh, 
natural gas-fired plants the most cost-effective sources of electricity. And with decreasing demand all over the state, there's excess supply of electricity at a very low cost. And so we're going to have a power plant that we anticipated would we'd need the demand and the power for that's going to come online later this year. Is it realistically we at this time don't have a need and haven't found a customer that has a need so that's going to be a challenge because it's going to require um, GRU to uh, come up with 70 million dollars a year uh, more than they've had to come up with before in order to uh, pay for it whether it runs or not and if they generate power it'll cost about 100 million a year but um, that's that's going to be a challenge and, and I've been you know, trying to find solutions to that and haven't found a magical solution as yet. And then on top of all those issues, I know a lot of people who will be voting for this election have ties to the University of Florida. And I was just wondering, how do you plan to foster the relationship between Gainesville and the University of Florida? Well, I think that's a critical one. My wife has been a professor at UF in nutrition for uh, 30 years now and uh, having lived in Gainesville myself for 35 years and being a graduate of the University of Florida I've got uh, a strong uh, uh, affinity to the, being a Gator and uh, and the relationship with the university which uh, when I served on the airport authority uh, Wynn Phillips uh, also served on it and you know I've known a number of the uh, key people in the university administration over the years so I think we can keep and nurture that relationship. It's not quite, or that was Pete Johnson, a candidate for mayor, speaking with WUFTFM's Leah Harding. It's not quite spring yet, but the Florida Division of Forestry says it may as well be, may as well be, judging from the fires being fought in the state. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Forrest Smith talked with wildfire mitigation specialist Ludie Bond about just how bad the situation is. We've seen I-95 shut down several times in the last few days due to smoke, smoking conditions from wildfires. Here locally in Marion County, we've had State Road 19 closed by the Hopkins Prairie Fire a couple of times. So people should be well aware that spring wildfire season has arrived, and it's arrived with a, a bang. Currently, we have 12 active wildfires in the Wakasasa District. That would be Alachua, Putnam, Levy, Marion, and Gilchrist counties. Now, these are fires that started over the week and are still con- continuing to smoke and smolder. Now, crews do have these fires contained, but they're continuing to do mop-up and monitoring those fires. So with that said, um, now is the time to prepare your home and property for the risk of wildfires. It, don't, don't wait until there's a fire at your back door. And that means um, cleaning away dead, dry vegetation from your roof, from your gutters, away from your structures, uh, making sure you're very vigilant as far as weather conditions, outdoor burning should not be done on days when it's extremely windy and last Saturday and Sunday we saw how those um, extremely strong wind gusts were spreading fires extremely rapidly and unfortunately there were some people who lost their homes and other structures not just here um, on the Ocala National Forest in Marion County but throughout the state so now would be the time to go ahead and take that action to protect your home and property and again not wait until there's a wildfire approaching also go ahead and prepare um, what you think you may need to take with you if you need to evacuate. There have been um, multiple evacuation conditions throughout um, 
our state in the last few days. We continue to be dry. Spring wildfire season is the time of year with the most active wildfires, the highest number and the largest number of wildfires typically in Florida. And that is because of the dry, windy conditions that we typically have here in Florida in the months of March, April, and May. And it does look like we're going to be dry for a while. It does. Uh, what usually happens then as temperatures start to increase towards the end of May and we start seeing the lightning systems move through the state. As we know, lightning doesn't always strike where the rain falls. So uh, things usually get even more active at that time before we move into our typical uh, afternoon thunderstorm pattern, which really isn't until June. So we're going to be dry for a while. That's just the way the weather patterns are in Florida, but people need to be proactive in protecting their home, the other structures on their property, and uh, there's really no prescribed burning that's been going on too much here around the state because we are dry. So if you do happen to see smoke, see a smoke plume, see something that you are concerned about, go ahead and call 911 and your local fire department and alert them. We do have uh, pilots with the Florida Forest Service who fly throughout the state of Florida in their districts every day monitoring and looking for new potential smokes or old fires, um, fire situations that are still active, still smoking and smoldering. They may kick up, which means they become more active and could potentially cross fire lines. So that's always a, a real issue as well. Some people are wanting to go to these fire scenes just to take a look. They're curious, want to see what's going on. Use caution, be safe, realize that there's a lot of heavy equipment moving in and out of some of these fire scenes. Um, so you probably need to stay off the roadways and out of the area. And of course, smoke on the roadways is always an issue. If you're concerned about a road that you may use to commute to and from work or um, somewhere that you're driving and you're wondering what the conditions might be, um, we advise that you check Florida Highway Patrol's website because they always have the latest up-to-date information on any um, road closures, detours, or any safety issues on the roadways throughout the state of Florida. You can also access that on the FloridaForestService.com website and look under Wildland Fire. That website will also give you information on where all the active wildfires are throughout the state of Florida, and you can access that at any time. That was the Florida Division of Forestry's Ludie Bond talking this morning with WUFTFM's Forrest Smith. We continue our coverage of the Gainesville City Commission District 4 election today with incumbent Randy Wells. Randy was elected to the City Commission in 2010 and currently serves as the chair of the Equal Opportunity Committee and the Metropolitan Transportation Planning Organization, made up of the city and county commissions. He is also a member and past chair of the Economic Development University Community Committee and member of the Community Development Development Committee. The WUFTA.org news team spoke with candidate Randy Wells about his vision if elected. What do you look forward to in the next few years as city commissioner if you were to be reelected? Well, I think um, following on the last three years of my service, I think we've done a good job in our city of staying with our investments in the key things that make us a very livable community. And I think going forward in the next three years, we've got some real opportunities that I've been a part of to accomplish some things that we as a community have been trying to do for a long time. And if we stick with these investments, I think we're going to have some success. Uh, a couple of ones in particular that I'd like to highlight. Um, in my role as the chair of the Regional Transportation Planning Organization, that's both the city and the county commission sitting together. And we rotate that chair among members of each of the commissions each year. So 
this is my first opportunity serving in that role. I really would like us to stay focused on finding common ground for a balanced long-term transportation plan. Folks may remember that in November, there was a ballot item that was not accepted by county and city voters voting all of us together for funding roads only improvements. I would hope that we, over the next year and a half or so, can come up with a plan that includes road maintenance improvements, but also improving our current transit, our bus system, and also looking forward to the future, how we can really bring up the quality of our transit system to make it um, more effective uh, and support good economic development in our community going forward. So uh, one of the things that I saw you were involved in was transforming the Gainesville Correctional Institution into a type of homeless shelter and social services center. Did you want to expand on that? Certainly. And this, again, this reflects something that we as a community have been working on going back close to a decade. We've made some small steps as a community, funding uh, more housing, particularly for vets, um, doing some supportive um, housing for folks coming out of uh, the hospital so that if, if they don't have a home to go to, providing a place where they can go to get better. But we really haven't been able to accomplish the one big goal, which is a one-stop center that would include housing services, meal services, a place to keep belongings, but then more importantly, going beyond those basic services to job skill training and connecting folks back into the community to become more self-sufficient and more connected in the community. Um, about a year ago, the state closed this state jail, Gainesville Correctional Institution, and uh, as soon as many of us looked at that property, we realized that it could provide us an ideal location for the one-stop center, but also a number of other community initiatives including job skill training, small business development, and even basic community building. There's an opportunity to do some uh, community gardening out there, uh, perhaps some other activities. And I've really led the effort to talk to community members about how can we work together, not just the city, uh, but all of us, the private sector, the nonprofit community, volunteers from uh, the university, from the community as a whole, the city and the county, all working together to achieve a very successful services, job skill training, and business development center out there at the, at the closed jail. Now, I saw some of the things that you were trying to campaign, of course, were in helping improve quality of life uh, within different neighborhoods as well as um, improve neighborhood safety um, and natural resources, uh, kind of helping the environment and certain things in that type of area. Um, what are some ways that you would be able to implement those ideas? Well, I think this goes to the idea of investing in our neighborhoods and our quality of life. And I've been, um, in one respect, responsible for the city's planned move to a special magistrate for our codes enforcement process to make it more transparent more consistent and something which citizens can more uh, uh, consistently rely upon to dealing with kind of quality of life issues within our neighborhoods. Um, but beyond that, uh, I think the community as a whole, and I certainly have been supportive of this, the city has continued to invest in green space conservation lands and also neighborhood parks. Um, in one of the areas uh, in my district, uh, there was a desire to take a closed U.S. Army Reserve Center and turn the grounds into a neighborhood park. 
and we're exploring the possibility of turning the building into some kind of neighborhood incubator for small local business people, nonprofits, or event space. Uh, and those are just a couple of examples of how the city can invest and make neighborhoods more livable and, and great places to live. I think we've also had a lot of focus on uh, making sure that our community is safer for bicycle and pedestrian traffic. We realize that we have to serve car traffic, of course, but it also has to be safe for folks who are walking and bicycling. And um, we've made a significant increase in the amount of sidewalk improvements that we've been making, and we've gotten some additional dollars to add some more connectivity for bicycle connections. Um, and I've been a big supporter of that. Now, uh, I just wanted to clarify, in the beginning when you were speaking about that special magistrate, uh, for those voters that don't particularly understand what that would mean, is there sure. a better way to explain that? Well, that just has to do with all sorts of uh, code enforcement activities that cities do, everything having to do with noise or uh, uh, maintenance of property, things that um, can tend to drag down a neighborhood, folks wanting to have a, a, a very uh, uh, safe, clean neighborhood and uh, making sure that all the properties in the neighborhood are maintained to a, a reasonable level. And that's been done in our community through a code enforcement board. But other communities have used a special magistrate. Um, some have even called it a livability court uh, elsewhere. And the idea is that this would be a place where folks could go and see those uh, concerns addressed, uh, either in terms of um, an enforcement uh, action against a property owner or uh, simply uh, guidance to staff to do a better job in terms of enforcing uh, or implementing city policies and codes. That was WUFT.org News Team speaking with City Commission District 4 candidate Randy Wells. President Obama signed this afternoon the renewal of the Violence Against Women's Act. Despite some hostility from Republicans, the bill has been extended to include other groups besides just women. WUFT-FM's reporter Morgan Falcon spoke with community officials on how this will create a safer environment for the Gainesville community. A bill that once seemed limited to women was headed to the White House this afternoon to be signed by President Obama. The Violence Against Women's Act, or VAWA, is now set to include members of the gay, lesbian, and bisexual communities, as well as immigrants, Native Americans, and the youth. Executive Director of Peaceful Paths, Dr. Teresa Beachy, says this act will better serve the community of Gainesville. Those groups are often the ones that receive the fewest services. Many times, especially when we're talking about immigrant women, the programs that are there to protect women are often not easily accessible, uh, or there's a greater fear because you're a part of a marginalized group in addressing the system. And so by making sure that the law provides the coverage and specifically addresses those marginalized groups, we are hoping that we will see greater numbers of victims from those communities and those populations coming forward to receive services. Beachy says that she is ecstatic the bill has passed despite resistance from some Republicans. Uh, I think that there's also an onerous among many conservatives to feel that if we protect one group, we're somehow taking rights away from another. And so that the protection of civil rights in general is somehow uh, infringing upon other people's rights. I think we see a lot of this in the gun control discussions where taking away um, 
people's civil rights to hold a firearm and to have a firearm um, is somehow far more important than protecting people from gun violence. And I think the same thing happens when we talk about the discussion uh, around VAWA, which is that there's somehow a perception that women don't need extra protections. And these really aren't extra protections. They're the basic protections that we need because violence against women continues to happen on a daily basis in our society. The act will help improve funding and services for organizations such as Peaceful Past that deals directly with victims of domestic violence. Beachy finds the support to be critical for their groups such as the trauma-related therapy. Obviously, we're extremely pleased that the legislature has seen fit to go ahead and make this uh, move to reauthorize VAWA. Uh, VAWA is a critical part of the bigger picture work that we do in terms of being able to end ultimately violence against women by ensuring that we have legislation, we have programs uh, that support the work, and by ensuring that we're still making violence against women uh, work a priority in our country. As Beachy mentioned, VAWA will go to funding and grant services, including sheriff and police departments. Detective Corporal with the Domestic Violence Unit at the Gainesville Police Department, Bruce Ferris, speaks about the enforcement side of the act. From a victim's point of view, it doesn't really matter what your sexual orientation or what your ethnic background or your um, color of your skin is. If you're a victim of intimate partner violence, you're a victim, and we need to uh, hold perpetrators accountable and try to get services to our victims to empower them. So the need is, is, is there independent of those uh, different groups. So it's, it's really important that we protected our whole community in Gainesville and in the nation and uh, certainly to ignore specific uh, minorities or uh, groups is an injustice and uh, you know helping uh, survivors get on with their life and not be uh, victimized is certainly the goal of everyone working in this field. Ferris says that the need is there and with acts such as VAWA the Alachua community is capable of responding by providing several beneficial services. The public needs to be aware of what a, a great community the Alachua County Gainesville region is in terms of the different providers that have a stake in intimate partner violence in this area, uh, both the Gainesville Police Department, the Sheriff's Office, Peaceful Paths, um, our victim services, the state attorney's office, the county victim and rape crisis center. Um, there's, I'm probably going to leave people out here, but our, uh, um, our court system, uh, probation, parole people, um, there's just a great effort taking place locally that a lot of people don't know about, and we work really well. We've had a lot of excellent trainings in this area that this grant's helped us with, and um, we're really doing the best we can to, to help uh, survivors survive and and like I say, you know, uh, help perpetrators, you know, learn, you know, uh, how to better handle their relationships and be accountable. Dr. Beachy welcomes anyone who has questions about partner violence or possible abuse to call 800-500-1119 or visit Peaceful Paths on the web at peacefulpaths.org. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Morgan Falcon.
The Pentagon's recent decision to add combat roles for women marks a historic shift towards equality in our country. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Kayla Gaskins reports on how this change is affecting the military women and their families in our community. The recent opening of combat roles to women has caused mixed feelings and emotions among those closest to them. Family members struggle with the idea of their sisters, daughters, and mothers being placed in the direct line of fire. University of Florida student Oliver Molino's youngest sister is a cadet at the United States Military Academy at West Point, and he does not like the idea of having her in harm's way. It definitely, uh, it definitely shook up the family a little bit, and it personally scares the hell out of me. Molino said his sister has discussed the issue with her family, and although she doesn't plan on a combat position, the possibility is there. I have spoken with my sister. Um, she's fairly confident that she will not serve in the Army in, in any combat role, but she says if she had to, you know, she would. She'd do it honorably, and, you know, at the end of the day, all I can do is love and support her in whatever she does. So that's, uh, that was her stance on it, and we talked about it, and it was good because we talked about it. Some of our local women are taking combat roles into consideration when enlisting. Since the Pentagon ordered an end to the 1994 ban, over 200,000 infantry positions will open up to women. Baker County High School senior Madison Perry comes from a family where military service and duty to country is a way of life. Her father served as a sergeant in the U.S. Army for 14 years and her older brother enlisted last spring. Perry plans to follow in their footsteps and enlist after high school. She says a combat role is a possible option. It's definitely added something else to think about. Uh, now that I have to make a decision soon, but um, I'm not completely opposed to the idea of combat, but I think I would want to make my decision after basic training as to where I wanted to end up in the military field. No matter what position his sister decides to take, Molino affirms at the end of the day she will always have his love and support, as should all the women in our military. Well, I know I can speak for pretty much every older brother. Um, we're very protective of our, of our younger siblings, especially our sisters. And uh, all I have to say to those guys is, hey, your sister, she's a grown woman. She made a decision to go to West Point Annapolis Air Force Academy. Um, she must be smart. She's got to be strong. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, you just got to support uh, whatever your sister, your brother, whatever, whatever anybody in your family decides to do. And for me, that was the hardest part, just accepting it because, you know, I would hate to see my sister go into combat, but um, it's the world we live in. The idea of any family member in harm's way, man or woman, is never easy for their loved ones. We live in a different world today, in a world where women are achieving equality on all levels. The availability of combat roles will allow women to move up in military rankings in a way that was never possible for them before. Reporting for Florida's 89.1, I'm Kayla Gaskins. It's estimated that nearly 22% of the world's population are Muslims. Millions of them live in America. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leah Harding spoke with women who have made the transition from life in the Arab world to life in the West. For each woman, the changes were different, yet a common sense of religious identity bonded these strangers together.
elements of the Arab world stretch far beyond the borders of North Africa, the Gulf states, and the Middle East. Some who call parts of the Middle East home have also found home on our shores, in the United States of America. Many who call the Middle East home have made the journey here, bringing with them aspects of their culture that don't have a place in a suitcase. For many Muslim women coming from the Middle East, they bring with them their language, way of dress, and their identity. I spoke with three Muslim women from three different countries in the Middle East who have made the journey from the East to the West. Nuf, Seda, and Amira spoke out about what life is like as a Muslim woman in the United States, revealing the truth behind the veil. طيب كيف حالك؟ الحمد لله بخير كيفك أنا مبسوطة شكرا كيف يومك اليوم؟ Nuf Al Sobahani is a 23-year-old from Saudi Arabia. She moved to Florida in September of 2012 with her husband, who was studying English at the University of Florida. Last year was Nuf's first time to the U.S. Upon traveling here, she spoke with her husband, who left her the choice to decide what she would wear. He said he asked me about how would I be there if I go to America, because a lot of Saudi, not sorry, Muslim women, uh, you know, diff- are different and wearing in the, in, in, you know in, in the way they wear their hijab. Some people, some Muslim women, wear just a scarf and some cover their faces. So uh, he asked me about that and I told him that I will be the way I am. So uh, I told him that I will, be, I will be the same. He was really happy that I decided and I you know chose that choice. Nuf has been wearing the hijab or headscarf since she was 12 years old. She also wears the naqab or face veil and the abaya or the long dress. When I met her at a coffee shop in Gainesville, all I could see of her was a one inch strip of skin around her eyes and the skin on the back of her hands. Even her eyebrows were tucked beneath her silk scarf. A lady asked me why I wear this and I explained it to her. She, you know, I told her that I am glad that you asked. It's okay to ask and I will be very happy to answer you. But when I came here, everything was good and people were very friendly with me. And I didn't face any difficulties or any discrimination or something like that. For Nuf, the niqab covers not only her face, but also preserves the essence of who she is as a woman. Me, I think the face is the center of beauty, so I have to cover it and uh, to show my eyes. So I can see. But there are times when the naqab does come off. So sometimes when I go to a doctor or some, you know, or uh, to take a photo or something for formal or uh, purpose, I take it off because, you know, uh, because I need to. So it's, uh, it, de- it depends on the person herself. So me, I think it's kind of awkward. It's not like, like some people here, some, uh, let me say, woman picturing himself naked and in public. It's the same, I think. Yeah. Nuf says covering her face, body, and hair strengthens the bond she has with her husband. She says it's an aspect of their relationship that they both respect and treasure. I think he likes it so much. He kind of, this is just for me. No one are allowed to see your beauty. No let me say no men can see this beauty 
So, yes, he liked this idea. You're too beautiful for the public. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's this idea of, you know, just restricting your, let me say, your charm just for specific people, for people who, who is allowed, or let me say, who are allowed in my culture to see, like, your closest relatives uh, and women. Sarah Lili also wears the hijab. She is originally from Tunisia and is currently an assistant professor of language studies at the University of Florida. She made the decision to wear the hijab in her early 30s after she left Tunisia. Sarah said she felt something was missing in her spiritual life and wanted to do something about it. I started wearing hijab in the United States and um, you know like for years I wanted to wear it and I was not I, I didn't have enough courage and the reason was that I you know um, I didn't want to be labeled into a certain category I, I want to be normal like everyone else I didn't think that my, spir my spirituality sets me apart from others uh, however, I always felt, you know, at, at some point, you know, at least uh, I just wanted to be myself. And, um, of course, uh, having, um, you know, been raised in, in fact, um, um, banned for some time. And uh, my, my family did not encourage me, actually. They always discouraged me from, from wearing it. So I had to reach a certain level of maturity and, and if you want to be able to do it. And um, when I started wearing the hijab, you know, like the first day I wore it, I thought, you know, I had just like a hat and I thought, okay, I will do it gradually because I don't want to shock people around me. The second day I couldn't. I just thought, no, I want to do it like full-fledged. And uh, since then, I never wanted to take it off. Sera believes the hijab is widely misunderstood and is branded with powerful yet condescending words that simply are not true. You know, you know, like there is this idea that when you wear the hijab, you are, for example, like very conservative and um, or I don't know, like there is this kind of label that it, it places on you. And I think they didn't see that. Like they just saw me as someone who fits or who, who is like uh, who blends with with the rest of society. So like the fact that I kind of removed myself from that image, it puzzled people, but no one asked. When Sara first met her husband, her hijab was a barrier in their relationship. It came to be something that she loved, yet something that he would loved to have seen go. When I met my husband, like in the, in the very beginning, I'm always around these people who do not seem to like hijab very much. <laughs> After we fell in love with each other, like the first week, and like after the first week, he started asking in a very convoluted way if I would consider taking off my hijab. And I thought, oh gosh, like I love this guy so much. It's so bad that I'm going to lose him. I said, of course not. I'm not going to take my to take off my hijab, you know. And I thought that was the end of it. And I was quite sad, but I was quite happy at the same time that I knew how important the hijab was for me and that 
you know, like that certainty um, which I discovered about myself. And I liked it. I liked that feeling. So it was not like a total loss for me, you know. Um, but then when I was telling him, okay, I feel like it's over. It's not, you know, going to work like this. I'm not going to take my off my hijab. But he said, what are you talking about? I'm going to marry you anyway. مرحبا كيف حالك؟ كويسة؟ ازيك؟ أنا ممتازة شكرا كيف كان يومك؟ <laughs> مش عارفة كيف كان يومك أميرة الدهيري is a 20 year old student studying at the University of Florida. She was born in Florida but has Egyptian parents and grew up visiting Egypt. She says she does not want her religious beliefs to be based on what she wears but rather simply on what she believes. I think I'm more of a spiritual person than a religious person because I feel like my identity as a Muslim is my relationship with God. It's not how I look outwardly to the world. Amira's parents never pressured her to wear a hijab, but did press for modesty in the way she dressed. Or like growing up for sure, like I would want to like buy all these shorts and all this stuff and my mom would be like, no, those are too short. Like, no, you can't buy that bathing suit. Like to this day, she doesn't let me get string bikinis and stuff like that. She doesn't like me wearing bikinis at all, but I'm like, I'm not going to wear full bathing suit. So, like, there are, and, and I mean, I see where she's coming from because, like, yes, like, you are very exposed. And when I'm in Egypt, I don't mind wearing a full bathing suit because, like, everyone is. So it's kind of like a group mentality thing. So, like, when I'm here, like, I don't want to just be that, like, one out, you know? For Nuf, her hijab will stay on. Her decision to stay covered is something she says will never change, not even if the weather does. Do you ever get hot? I mean, it's Florida. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes I'm wearing shorts and I'm hot. So. Yeah. yeah every, even in my country, you know, it's very hot. But I think, uh, the way I think, is, it's, I do something for my God. And he, he knows what I'm doing for him. On this side of the veil, we must seek to understand and realize that culture is borderless, self-defined, and colorful. For Sarah and Nuf, speaking about their life behind the veil helps to bring perspective to Western culture, veiled by curiosity, misconceptions, and awe. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leah Harding. And thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Chip Scambus.